And what this new research shows is that if you do gene editing in mouse cells by a totally standard methodology, what happens is all this DNA sneaks in from places that uh, nobody really expected it to come from. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 23rd of October 2019 here across the Dateline in Japan. But today we're talking to a guest who is a previous Corbett Report guest that I hope you may be familiar with. That's Dr. Jonathan Latham of IndependentScienceNews.org. And if you are not familiar, you can go back in the Corbett Report interview archives back to interview 1096 from 2015, where we talked to Dr. Latham about GMO concerns and a uh, article that he had written at that time, Growing Doubt a scientist's experience of GMOs. Today we're going to be talking about a, well, a related but slightly different subject, gene editing. And we're going to talk about a new report that he's just put out at independentsciencenews.org, which will, of course, be linked up in the show notes. Dr. Jonathan Latham, thank you again for taking the time. My pleasure, James. Let's get into your new report. Specifically, we're talking about gene editing unintentionally adds bovine DNA, goat DNA, and bacterial DNA Mouse Researchers Find, which is a very interesting article, but one that, uh, well, does get technical, as a lot of your articles do. So for the non-technical, non-specialist audience out there, why don't we just start with the basic question, what is gene editing? So, well, well, gene editing is a little bit of a misnomer. What it really is, is targeting cuts in DNA to specific locations in the genome, and then uh, basically, have the cell repairs those cuts, and researchers select from cells that have repairs that they like the look of. So, so if you're a researcher, you'll take a whole, you know, set of tissue cultures, or you'll take cells that are going to turn into a new organism, and you will basically select the one that you like the look of. And so, so, and you can do that. You know, you can select through as many organisms as you want, basically. So it's not editing in the way that you would do it on a keyboard, but it's something similar-ish. So the gene editing industry, such as it exists right now, uh, is touting the safety of this technique and the fact that it will not introduce foreign DNA into the gene-edited subjects. But of course, as the title of this article and as the article in-depth demonstrates, this is not the case. Tell us about the latest research that refutes this claim. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, there's a big fight going on at the moment over the regulation of gene editing and whether it should be, you know, subject to the same constraints uh, as GMO uh, organisms. And, you know, that, that, that debate is at the moment being settled in different directions, in different jurisdictions. So the U.S. is going kind of in favor of no regulation, at least if the USDA gets its way. And countries like the EU uh, or, or blocks like the EU are looking at regulating gene edits as GMOs. So there's a big fight. And the, the industry, you know, the breeding industry, there are all kinds of, um, you know, entre- there's a whole battery of entrepreneurs out there wanting to produce, uh, you know, additives for food. There are people who want to produce gene-edited livestock. There are people who want to produce gene-edited crops. They all have a stake in this regulation. And what is, you know, their big claim is that this editing is so precise 
that essentially you can't tell the difference between an edited organism and one bred through normal, say, plant breeding or livestock breeding and so forth. And some people seem to have bought into this argument and some people don't. And the, you know, but the big claim of it is that at least in principle, you can make something that is negligibly different from the parent organism. And what this new research shows is that if you do gene editing in mouse cells by a totally standard methodology, what happens is all this DNA sneaks in from places that uh, nobody really expected it to come from. So, for example, you know, you need to add some DNA to your cell culture in the form of the gene editing machinery and or the gene editing template that you want to alter the cells to and it turns out that this DNA has contaminating DNA, the, the, which comes from E. coli, right? So basically, when, when that DNA comes from E. coli, it means that, that DNA from E. coli, a bacterium, is basically going to end up in the mouse cell. What, these, what this new research also showed is that when they were editing these mouse cells, what they found was goat DNA and also cow DNA. And, and the reason is because their reagents derive from living organisms, from cows or goats, and sometimes from other species that are also present because they're kind of standard reagents that all biologists use because, you know, for the most part, they're not trying to commercialize a product. So essentially what's happening is techniques that are being used in the lab to make, you know, single cells or to alter things that will never leave the lab are being adopted by these entrepreneurs, you know, there's this company Recombinetics, which a lot of this fuss is about, which is basically producing these hornless cattle. And these hornless cattle, it's claiming, are identical to, the, to, to hornless cattle developed by other methods. And they're using these standard lab techniques. And they are almost certainly going to have E. coli DNA and DNA from different species ending up in their animals. And so this is totally contradicting to the, the propaganda, if you like, of the biotech industry that, you know, so much is resting on as far as they're, they're concerned. That's right. And that relates to an article that you put up uh, last, last month, August. Um, FDA finds mm. unexpected antibiotic resistance genes in gene-edited Deanhorn cattle, which is, again, talking about this Recombinetics company in particular and their polled cattle. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, just to clarify, this isn't a problem specifically with Recombinetics, this particular biotech startup, you're you're saying that this is actually the standard procedures for gene editing as as it's applied right now. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because because you have people quoted in the media. You know, this story has been picked up by various uh, outlets, and you get people quoted in the media. Some of them saying, "Well, we never expected this antibody the the cattle." So these cattle specifically we're going to go to Brazil and be used in breeding programs and Brazil's now closed down that breeding program and so forth. So there have been implications of this already. But but essentially some people are saying, oh this is no surprise because you know you put antibiotic resistant genes in there, they're going to and some of them sometimes will end up in the edited organisms. And other people are saying this is the total surprise. We never imagined that this would happen. And recombinetics basically did not look for the kind of changes that they found. Basically, it was the FDA that found the changes that recombinetics had put in there. 
Henry Common Ethics is now on the record as saying, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I mean, to me it's insane, but, but they, they basically said, we didn't think to look for this. That, that is insane. That would be the first thing that I think any layman would, would expect about this is that, oh, Recombinetics found the problems, but you're saying they didn't even look for those problems. No, no, it seems, you know, I mean, I mean, there's two interpretations of why FDA, it took FDA two years to find it and, and Recombinetics never found it. These animals were born three years ago. This, this has only just come out in the last uh, month or two. So, so, you know, one interpretation is Recombinetics is simply incompetent. And, you know, in, in terms of their, you know, looking for DNA and their computer programs and their algorithms and stuff. And the other is that, that you know, their board and, of advisors and their scientific people basically didn't even think to look. And it seems the answer was they didn't even think to look. That's it's, uh, it's startling and 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 shocking really and and what are the implications of this finding um for what does it mean that bovine dna for example is ending up in in mice what are the possible ramifications yeah. of something like that yeah well you know on one level you can say well you know this is just mammal dna getting into another mammal maybe that's you know maybe that's less interesting than e coli dna getting into a mammal but you know organisms are basically organized in such a way that that they you know they they basically are used to various genetic events happening in the process of reproduction and incorporation of dna from foreign organisms is not part of that recipe so you know you can think of just general random things that might happen you know that genes become misexpressed they have you know health problems maybe that would be upsetting or or you know people are making gene edited crops that have then produce toxins or some uh, molecules that are not good for your health, for example. So like there are potential toxicological consequences for people. And we have, you know, there are examples in the world of GMOs of uh, inadvertently introduced genes that were basically, or, you know, either known to be or thought to be toxic to the kind of uh, organisms that we're going to be fed these crops. So that's one possibility. But also this recombinetics, uh, sorry, the bovine DNA ending up in the cow genome, basically at random, that was never, you know, basically random DNA or semi-random DNA ending up in these animals means that you have the possibility of transferring viruses, for example. They found transposon, they found uh, uh, basically you know, viral viral DNA from retroviruses was ending up in the wrong place of the genome of these mice. And in that case, the retroviruses came from another part of the genome of the mouse. But there's no reason in principle why these retroviruses can't come from the cow, for example. What they did find is, is things called retrotransposons, which are jumping genes. They ended up in the genome of the mouse. So this is jumping genes from a cow end up in the the genome of the gene edited mouse, right? And so if this goes on to become part of the breeding stock, you know, you're doing a livestock experiment and goat DNA ends up in a, in a cow genome, you could end up spreading viruses and pathogens from one organism to the other. And in, in any event, you can spread viruses and pathogens if, you're, if DNA is basically being transferred inadvertently or solutions are being mixed, basically in a way that you never anticipated in the breeding program. So this is a huge wake-up call. And it's, you know, to me it's interesting that when we, when we published the article about 
the antibiotic resistance genes ending up in the cows, that was quite widely covered in the media. Right? We were the first to report it, but but then the B, you know now the BBC has had it, El Pais, Le Monde, various uh, uh, newspapers and websites in the U.S. have covered the story. But when we covered the story of the bovine DNA and the goat DNA and the E. coli random E. coli DNA ending up in the genome of these gene-edited mice, no one covered that story. And I think it's because this is the, you know it totally collapses the argument of the the of the industry that they don't want to be regulated basically they can be left to regulate themselves is their argument and that that argument is now smashed to smithereens as far as i'm concerned well uh, you're very right to pick up on the uh, lack of interest shall we say in in this story in the mainstream corporate media in fact the latest gene editing story that I can find via statnews.com, new CRISPR tool mm. has the potential to correct almost all disease-causing DNA glitches, scientists report, which says that a new form of the genome editing tool CRISPR-Cas9 appears to significantly expand the range of diseases that could be treated with the te technology by enabling scientists to precisely change any of DNA's four letters into any other and insert or delete any stretch of DNA, etc., etc. Not a single mention of anything regarding the potential risks of this type of technology, although uh, just for the record, CRISPR-Cas9 is not specifically what you're referring to with this recombinetics uh, problem? No. In the, in the case of the recombinetics experiment, they used uh, another kind of editing methodology. I mean, basically, it's just substituting one enzyme for another enzyme. It's not, it's, there's not a huge difference there. In the case of the mouse genome, where they were where the bovine DNA and the goat DNA and the E. coli DNA ended up in the genome of mice. That was CRISPR gene editing. And CRISPR is kind of considered to be the, the, the methodology that will be most used in the future. But of course, that, you know, that expectation is totally dependent on which companies live or die and patents and all kinds of complications that are outside of most people's control. So, so we still, you know, we don't know the answer to that question yet. Well, one of the factors that, that you have mentioned here is, of course, the regulatory environment that's going to, in some sense, choose the winners and losers in this burgeoning industry. And, of mm. course, as you say, it was the FDA that that uh, seems to have discovered this this problem in recombinetics uh, uh, gene editing. So tell us mm. about the FDA's role in this, where it goes from here. Is this, I mean, I'm assuming they're, they're calling for a stop to all of this. No, no, probably not. But, but no. how does this proceed from here? <laughs> They're not calling for a stop. I mean, in, in, in the FDA's paper and the quotes, you know, they're quite encouraging about recombinetics. But what's, you know, one of the things that's interesting is not only are there jurisdictional issues, you know, of different countries, you know, perhaps perceiving that they have different interests in all this issue, uh, you know, fighting in a sense over the future of regulation. You know, when Boris Johnson, for example, the new British prime minister, He's made a whole ton of speeches about biotechnology and GMOs and how wonderful they are, which presumably are linked in his mind to Brexit, right? Because he's thinking that, that if they want to trade deals no longer with Europe, but more with the U.S., then they're going to have to comply with U.S. Uh, systems of regulation. And that means that basically the population will end up eating GMOs, which at the moment they mostly don't do. So, so there are all these complications. And one of them is that FDA would like to regulate gene editing. 
the other the twist to all this is the industry itself would most would like for the most part to be regulated by USDA. So you've got two, but you've got two kind of communities, if you like, who are doing gene editing. There's the communities who are doing mammals, who are doing medical research, who are doing you know even human gene editing. Basically, there's a medical community. And then there's the agribusiness community, which is also doing gene editing, whose friends are all in USDA, right? So you've got two communities who would, you know, who some of whom would like to be regulated by FDA, and some of whom would like to be regulated by USDA. And you can interpret this FDA because FDA didn't need to say a thing, right? They could have just done it and meant had a private word with these people, but they put a paper online, and. Uh, which I haven't published yet, very interestingly, but they put it online. And essentially, you can see this as their bid to regulate. Look, you know, USDA is offering hands-off. We're offer, offering hands-on. If you want to go with hands-off, that's fine. But look, we've already shown that hands-on regulation is actually needed. And FDA is proposing a regime of regulation, which is actually, you know, a little bit stringent, whereas USDA is basically going to wave everything through. And once again, it comes down to bureaucratic wrangling um, that it seems the general public is several steps removed from. But I do note that you end your article by saying it's not just regulators who need to step up, however. Investors, insurers, journalists, everyone, in fact, should be asking far, far more questions of the scientists and companies active in gene editing. Otherwise, boom is likely to stray into bane. So on that note, what is it that people in the audience can or should be doing to involve themselves in this issue? Well, you know, I mean, that's it's not so easy to get to get involved. I mean, the the um, you know, there are sometimes public comment periods uh, which agencies open. The um, you know, I've, I wish I was better informed on whether, whether there was any public comment uh, uh, situations coming up or, or ongoing at the moment. I tend not to contribute to these things because I'm kind of at a you know disappoint. You know, I don't see much hope in these agencies really. But, but the, you know, the public, I mean, first of all, it would be great if the public would share information about skepticism, you know, on social media or emailing journalist friends or just sharing with friends. You know, this, all this kind of background information is really important that the population has some level of understanding because, you know, in future, you know, the biotech industry imagines that all your food and all your medical products and all kinds of weird stuff that will show up in the stores like like you know uh, microbes in your yogurt and stuff bars and stuff in your beer will all be gene edited and the more people know about gene editing the better basically as far as i'm concerned because basically an informed audience can protect itself and an uninformed audience has no chance really of protecting itself. So, it's, so there's, there's things like that. It's a good point that public opinion has a large role to play in this because, as we've just seen with the Monsanto trials and some of the information that's come out from them, Monsanto did have in place a coordinated effort to sway online opinion by actively participating yeah. in comment forums and other such things to a, a crisis response team. Anytime Monsanto was mentioned on the internet, it was like conjuring a demon. They would they would yeah. come up to, yeah, yeah. to try I mean, to comment on yeah. the, those articles and and to sway public opinion. They wouldn't do so if public opinion wasn't important in these issues. Yeah, that, that that's precisely right. I mean, one, one of the reasons why public opinion, you know, this is one of the reasons I work in the food space is because, you know, there's some chance that the public 
can basically vote with its dollars. You know, in many spheres of public life, you know, if you want the different different amounts of money to go to the Pentagon or different amounts of you know foreign foreign policy to operate differently, there's the the avenues that people have to intervene in that process are limited. In the food system, you know, people are always sharing information at the dinner table. They're sharing information with their friends. They can choose to buy non-GMO food. They can choose to buy organic food. These food differences, you know, provide an opportunity for people to to basically vote for, with their dollars. And, I, you know, I, I'm the last person to say that, you know, government shouldn't be doing this. But, but you know, there is a role for the public in the food system that, that there isn't in many other uh, political domains. All right. Well, one way for people to actually inform themselves on these issues is, of course, to follow independent science news. Tell us a little bit about your organization and what it does. Uh, well, you know, I used to be a genetic engineer, and uh, and together with uh, Alison Wilson, we formed a nonprofit, and eventually this led us to publish the website Independent Science News. And what we do there is basically cover issues to do with science in the in the food system. So we talk about pesticides, we talk about regulation, we talk about GMOs, we talk about sewage sludge, and we have resource pages and you know, you know, really, really good quality information, so that people don't have to be misinformed about about and, and can have, find a place where you know there's good scientists writing about sensible stuff, and we get invited commentaries, and we get you know we try to get the best people to write about these really, really important issues. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave today's conversation there. But of course, the links to all of these specific articles and to your website in general will be in the show notes at CorbettReport.com for those who wish to follow them. Uh, And Dr. Jonathan Latham, I hope it will not be four years until our next conversation. So please do keep us informed of the latest developments. Well, thanks for having me on, James. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes the Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.